Welcome to So You Want to Move to the Country and Raise Goats. This is a podcast about change. Change is all around us and sometimes we're ready for it and sometimes we're not. Change can make us happy, it can make us sad, and for the most part it does make us anxious. When it overwhelms us, well, we just want to move to the country and raise goats. This podcast features stories from people who have gone through change. We hope that their insights will help you better understand and deal with the changes in your life. I'm Peggy Koenig, and along with my co-host, Catherine Greiva, we chat with insightful people with interesting change stories. I'm a longtime entrepreneur and a consultant who fixes people and organizational problems, and Catherine uses her C-suite experience and entrepreneurial spirit to facilitate organizational strategy. We hope you enjoy our podcast. David Tollefson is Vice President with Feldman Dax and Partners, a firm out of Toronto, where they provide career transition, executive search, and coaching leadership. David's also an executive coach with Feldman Daxon. So as our podcast guest, he tells us about his career transitions, and we also have the added benefit of his insights into coaching other people in their career transitions. David tells us how he's boiled life down to three areas, and that he puts the way he spends his time into two buckets, things that bring him energy and things that don't. David brings new meaning to being mindful about how you approach life, work, and family. Career changes and life changes have been a constant for David, and it's really given him clarity about what's important and what gives him energy. And he's on another life change, a very inspirational one in his 60s, and he tells us all about that. There are so many insights David shares with us, and he joins us from his home office in Toronto. So just just really quickly, to give you the, the, the full scope of it, started in a family-run printing business, uh, you know, in my late teens out of high school. I, I figured that was the direction I would go. You know, one day I'd take over the business and it would be mine. And, and that was, you know, sort of direction one. About a year or so into that, I started up a junior high youth program for kids in our neighborhood through the church that I was attending. Ended up with two full-time jobs, one paying, one not. Uh, was just pushing myself, you know, far too hard. And one weekend, blacked out in a hockey tournament I was in and, and the, the, you know, the doctor sort of got a hold of me in the hospital and it was kind of doing the history thing and just said, look, he said, your body needed a break and you weren't given it one. So it took one. And he said, next time you're not going to be as lucky. So it was at that point I realized I needed, I had to make a change. And it was a, a question of making the decisions to where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do with that. What I really loved doing was working with people and and seeing some change you know making a difference so with that i decided to leave the business and having grown up in the church my only frame of reference was well okay if you if you want to help people want to be in the the people business uh, you become a minister that was kind of my whole frame of reference so off i went to uh, college went down to missouri i did an undergraduate degree in biblical studies started pastoring in a church in pennsylvania and while I was there, I was just really unsatisfied with what I was doing. Not that it wasn't, you know, great work and, and, and what I was doing was great, but it wasn't quite what I wanted to be doing. David, were you surprised at that, that you, it wasn't what you wanted because you grew up in the church, the church is where you go, you love people, you had kind of both of those boxes checked off? It probably was, but making the assumption 
that I knew what the change was going to look like, you know, kind of along this you know, topic of, of change management, making the assumption that having grown up in the church, I, I, I knew what this change was going to look like, what it would mean to be a pastor. I missed some things. Uh-huh. And, and probably had I done some, you know, research, some interview, inter- informational interviewing and talked to some uh, maybe ministers or people in the ministry about, you know, what their day looked like and what frustrated them and what they loved about what they were doing. I, I might have picked up on some things that frustrated me about it. And the biggest frustration for me was I was largely working with people where they showed up on Sunday as opposed to, you know, working and having an impact in people's lives, you know, seven days a week. And it, it may have been particularly true for the church in Pennsylvania I was pastoring as opposed to maybe what a lot of churches do. And there's been a real culture shift within churches today as far as how they're engaged, you know, with people and, and their lives. But th- this goes back 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so with that, I got talking to a, uh, a psychologist in our, in, in the church and he said, Dave, have you ever thought about counseling? And it kind of opened my eyes up to other, other opportunities. And, and when it comes to career management, I sort of, and, and, and what we want to do and what makes for fulfilling, rewarding work, I kind of started to pull together a little bit of a, of a model that, you know, that, that helped me to sort of establish what that might be and what that might look like. In looking at that model, the, the coaching thing really and counseling thing really made sense. So I went, came back to Toronto, went to York University, another element of change. Came back to Toronto, York University, did another undergraduate degree in psychology. While I was here, met Deb, got married, and almost immediately took off for Ohio to do a master's in psychology and counseling, leaving Deb here in Toronto, uh, where she was, she was the, the president of a chain of Esprit clothing stores. Mm. so we kind of lived in two different cities and bounced back and forth whenever we could and that was the first year of my life didn't like that so the second year of my master's I I essentially lived in Toronto and commuted to Ohio uh, to finish things up at the end of that kind of put myself back in sort of another spot where so essentially what I started doing at that point then was I'm making this a longer story than than what I had promised you uh at that point, was pastoring in a church in Toronto, uh, was teaching college courses on psychology and counseling, I uh, was running my own private practice, and I had a young family. Hmm. Again, was was burning out, and this time it was taking a real toll in my relationships. Mm-hmm. And again, recognized the need for change. So you you still felt the pull to do the pastoring. Yeah, and 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 I'll tell you where that came from, and I and I didn't really identify this until just a few years ago when Deb was in the last couple of months of her life. Um, I boiled my life down to three words, and those three words were going to be words that were going to help me sort of focus on what I need to be doing, where I need to be going, and and how I was going to make decisions. And and those three words for me were faith you know, in something bigger than, than who I was and something that would have impact in the way that I lived my life behaviorally. Second for me was love, the ability to be able to love others as well as accept love. And, and quite honestly, the accepting part was the hardest part for me. Mm-hmm. And third for me was service. Uh, you know, doing something that had nothing to do with me and, and could make a difference. Well, I realized when I sort of established those three words that without having put those labels on them, that was always, that was always there for me. 
Uh, so back when I was making those decisions, it always kind of came down to those three things. Um, the mistake I had made was putting too much emphasis in one area uh, and not taking care of the other. Mm. Uh, and that was where the, the burnout often arrived. Now, I was going to ask you about this propensity to take on too much. Um, so you you did it again, right? Just as you had. I did it twice. Yeah. It twice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So another wake up call, obviously, you had to have another another wake up call of some sort to sort of get you back online. Yeah. And I essentially had to put in place some principles or some um, ways of governing my life that protected myself from me. Oh, that's I love that. <laughs> yeah. 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 We're the, we are our own worst enemies at times. Yes. Well, and, and much younger and thought I was invincible and thought I could do everything and anything and, and just continue to push. And I don't think that ever changed. I don't think it's, it's changed today when I look at what I'm, I'm doing. I just govern it differently now. So how do you do that, David? How, like, how do you set those parameters for yourself? It was really hardcore at first. And at first, essentially, I, I made this decision. If you came and asked me to do something or if an opportunity presented itself, if it didn't have anything to do with my family or directly related to the work that I was doing, the answer was no. Mm. And it just was a hard and fast, you know, I'm sorry, you know, might love to, might have had that day off, but it was, it was no, it just, it didn't fit. Then it came down to, you know, really understanding for me where my energy came from and recognizing, you know, from a Myers-Briggs perspective, I'm an introvert, which, which no one would ever guess. But my energy came from, you know, just getting some solitude and some opportunity to reflect. And so whether it was riding my, my motorcycle, you know, now or playing around a golf business, whatever it was, that's how I charged my batteries. Well, my work and my social connections had nothing to do with that. It put me in an extroverted world. So now what I do is I, I work hard at governing my energy levels. I think that's one of the best things that Myers-Briggs has done, has really clarified, you know, that introvert versus extrovert yeah. and where you get your energy. And did you find, David, once you named it, it was like a bit of an aha? Oh, this makes sense now. It made sense, but I think that the challenge with it is just knowing and understanding something doesn't always help you make changes or know how to govern it. Yeah, it's true. You know, and you kind of go, oh, geez, I, why, why do I keep doing this? You know, I essentially have two buckets that I throw all of my life into when, when something comes along, activities, you know, whatever it might be. And, and those two buckets are things that drain me of energy and things that produce energy. And what I realized was the, the bucket with all those things in there that were that drained me of energy, I realized I didn't have a whole lot of control over. It was life, it was responsibilities, it was family, it was you know kids, it was you know life circumstances. And I had little to no control over that. And so part one of my of what I would do with that bucket is recognize that. I don't have any control over those situations, but I do have control over how I choose to manage those things. Right. And that became the work on, on that side of the equation. So I, I've always said we have absolutely no control over 
what other people think, say, or do, or the circumstances of our life. The only thing that we have real control over is what we choose, and I always underline the word choose, what we choose to think, say, or do. And making that choice, I recognize that can influence maybe other people and their impact on me or other situations, but I have no control over it. So interesting. But there's a discipline in, as you say, doing something about it. It's one thing to name it, where the buckets, what falls into the buckets, but it's a whole Mm -hmm. other thing to have the discipline to do something about it. And don't you feel that it's sometimes we just go through life and, oh, yeah, that drains me of energy and keep doing it. Or we don't do anything about it. So were there any techniques that you used to have that kind of rigor around categorizing and doing something about those buckets? Yeah, and I have a natural aversion to techniques. <laughs> but, but, but I do have some things I'm absolutely committed to. And I don't know if this is going to answer your question or not. For me, it just comes down to understanding what the cost is or the benefit and asking myself whether something is really worth what it's going to cost me, essentially doing a cost-benefit analysis. Hmm. And, and then just making a conscious choice to propel myself in a particular direction and being, and being committed to it. Yeah. Um, and, and what I've recognized is, at least for me, if you choose to buy into that the two greatest motivators in life are pain and pleasure, I, I've recognized that um, pain is a greater motivator than pleasure ever will be. So if I ought to do something or I should do something because what's going to make me feel great is going to be some great reward for it. That's fine. But sometimes I just rather kind of stay where I am than get that extra reward. But if you tell me that it's going to be painful to continue to do something, now I'm, I'm more committed. I'm more motivated because I don't want to go through that pain. So I keep that acutely in front of me, the pain part. So that, um, you know, I just go, no, I, you know, I, I could hit my head against the wall you know, a whole bunch of times, but why? And once I realize it hurts, I just don't have a whole lot of desire to continue to bang my head against the wall. So maybe it's time to do something different. So David, it sounds like you spent, I'm sure all of these revelations just didn't come to you. I, I expect this is growing over time, but it certainly started when you were over encumbered again, when you were doing pastoring and you were teaching and you were doing a whole variety of other things. And that's where that sort of started how did you proceed like you you must have given up pastoring I think and you took some other directions because I know you owned a business at one time as well yeah and so speaking to what you know the the pain pleasure principle I, I I realized you know the cost of you know the pain that burning that a second time was, was causing me and it was time I had to make it I had to make a change so it was a question then of what and found myself uh, presented with an opportunity of working for uh, Peggy. You'll, you'll remember this, Becky Jones and Associates. Yeah. Um, and they were looking for a a male counselor. It was a woman. It was a woman-run human capital firm, or largely just all they really did was was career transition. They needed a, a, a coach or a, a consultant with pants on. Um, <laughs> so, um, and that's so within a within a short period of time. Uh, I ended up as her VP and general manager. And then when she chose to retire, 
um, I had the opportunity of buying her business, which is which is what I did. And and a lot of my the rationale for that was, and where it made sense was, doing the career transition outplacement counseling fit two of my loves. It it got me back into business, which I you know really enjoyed, and it was making a difference in people's lives. And and so it it fit. And, and kind of what was worth at that point pursuing and, and throwing my heart and my life into. So you were doing career counseling and transitioning into different careers. I was, I was, yeah, coaching people in. So essentially what outplacement or career transition counseling is, is when an organization or a company lets go and in individuals releases them as part of their severance package, they'll often get our services and we help that exited employee and their transition to i always say to what comes next which may be a you know a, a next job it might be a transition into a, a next phase of their life retirement semi-retirement uh, making a change of industry or professions going back to school and, and we, we would coach them in that that move to that next that next thing and so when you're coaching folks that are going through this transition is there kind of does it boil down to some people's biggest fear that they have in moving from where they were into this into the next part of their life? It's not an easy question to answer because emotionally people respond to different circumstances in life differently and for different reasons. And, and it often comes down to the way that they, again, I'm going to use the word choose to think. Um, because I'm of, I'm of the belief that our emotional states are a direct byproduct of how we choose to think. And I'll give you this example when it comes to transition. And I think this has a lot to do with, with change. But we use the specific example of you know, someone who's just lost their job and now needing to transition to do something new. When I first sit with them, I'm, I listen very intently to their words. If I hear their words, I know how they're, I know how they're thinking. If I know how they're thinking, they don't have to tell me how they're feeling. I, I can figure it out. So for that person that says, oh, my goodness, what, what, what am I going to do? I've, I've just lost my job. I've, I've got a new house. I've got a mortgage. I've got young kids. How am I going to put food on the table? Um, am I going to be able to keep you know, my house? I know exactly how that person is feeling. They're, they're clearly going to be fearful, afraid, you know, scared. Uh, the second individual comes along and says, man, I, I loved working here. I love the people. Um, man, I'm never going to miss my colleagues. I, I know how they're feeling. They're, they're sad, you know, about losing a job that they loved in a place they, they worked at. The, the third individual, you know, comes on and says, I, you know, these guys are idiots. I can't believe they let me go. I'm the best employee that they've ever had. Well, how's that person feeling? They're angry. Right. And then there's the person that comes along and says, hey, you know, this may not have been the greatest thing that happened, but I know that I'm really good at what I do. And I've got some great help and support here. And I've got a severance package. I'm going to have employment insurance. I know I've got some money coming in and, and I'll find something. Well, that person is a lot more hopeful. And if I finish out the equation, if our emotional states are a direct byproduct of how we choose to think, then it only follows that our behavior is a direct byproduct of how we feel. Right. So for a person that's now feeling hopeful, they don't have that anger. They don't have that. Uh, sadness, that, you know, whatever those other states may be for them. When they walk into, just for one example, in an interview, I know that that person that's hopeful and feeling good about who they are and what they can do is going to perform a whole lot better in an interview 
than the person that's angry at the at the at the previous employer or scared they they've got to get this job and what happens if they don't? Uh, so our thinking drives our emotional states, our emotional states drive our behavior, mm-hmm. and that's largely how I'll you know I'll manage change. I, I come all the way back to how do I choose to think? Now there's parts of that equation that that hit before the thinking part, which is our history and our belief systems and what naturally come up sometimes for us. But we always have the ability to choose how we think, even if our initially our thoughts or our feelings are different from where they want to be, where we want them to be. So David, it's really apparent as you're talking that providing coaching, uh, helping people and running a business, you sort of found, you found your place. Yeah. Yeah. And well, yes. And, and I always like to use the word and as opposed to, but yes. (laughs) And I find myself in the midst of yet, another major transition in my life, you know, at 60 something. I'm currently doing volunteer work for a not-for-profit that does work in the Dominican Republic and have application in with the U.S. government for a green card visa to pursue that uh, not-for-profit work. Wow. Now, I will, I will continue to, you know, stay in Toronto and do some things here to support the, the work that I'm doing here and It'll be a question of you know how much where time gets you know divvied up. That's the next transition of my life. Wow, congratulations, David. You've had a number of transitions in your life and have picked up terrific nuggets and and ways, I think, to manage through it and being very mindful of uh, of going through transitions. So do you have any insights that you could share with people of what you've knowledge that you've gained? I'll, I mean, there's probably a, there's probably a few, and I think I've touched on a good number of them already. I'll come back to something you said, you know, early on, which is change is a reality, you know, for all of us. There's no way of avoiding it, and it comes in a lot of different shapes and forms. So ignoring it doesn't doesn't work because uh, it forces itself upon us. And and there's sort of that old expression that the the only person that that really loves change is is a wet baby. Uh, so I, I think our, our natural, we have a natural aversion to wanting to leave in a place that's comfortable for us and changing into a place that is unknown. Because if I've, if I've learned anything that, that ignorance is creates a lot of fear. When I, when I say ignorance, just like not knowing, right. um, cr- creates fear and anxiety. And it's, 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 it's a term used too easily. It's, it's the ability to be able to embrace it. We embrace the change. You know, maybe sometimes it's closing your eyes and taking a leap, but I always much prefer to have my eyes open and really understand it as best I can because the better I understand what's in front of me and what the change is going to look like, uh, the easier it is for me to manage that and make good choices. If I was going to wheel things down to one word, in fact, I might use two. One is perspective. What perspectives do we choose to take? about what's in front of us, um, which, again, comes back to all the whole, you know, how we think and our emotional states of behavior. And the second for me is just commitment. Is just I'm, 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 now, I'm now committed to a, uh, a path or a, a course of action, and, and I'm going to follow through on it. 
So if people want to find you, David, where would they find you? Would, uh, I know you have a LinkedIn account. Is that a good connection? I, I guess it is. I, I, I wish... I, I wish I was more technologically savvy. <laughs> David, this has been terrific. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your insights. You're welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much. Peggy, you've worked with David before. Yes, we were colleagues. So, yeah, David and I have known each other for a long time. And, you know, the, the insights that he has about change and career transition are priceless. It, it is inspirational and it is the best definition of mindfulness that I've heard around how you think. First of all, you have to think about how you think and then that drives your emotions, which in turn drives your behavior. Exactly. But that's mindfulness at its core. Yeah, yeah. And I think mindfulness is really core to uh, making successful change. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was just a delight to reconnect with you. If you've learned just one thing about change while listening to this podcast, please subscribe on Apple or Spotify and share with a friend. This episode recorded via Zoom audio. Producers Peggy Koenig and Catherine Greiba. Executive producer Koenig Leadership Advisory. Audio editing and production Big Bang Studios. Sound engineer Hal Schrank. Theme music La Pompée written by Chris Harrington. Music publisher Invato Market. For information on this podcast and to purchase some fabulous goat merchandise, please visit www.getyourgoat.ca.